And this morning we're changing gears in the Gospel of Matthew. As we've been going through from chapter 1 all the way through Matthew, we're moving from chapter 23, which we finished last Sunday, to chapter 24. Now Matthew 24 and 24, uh, 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, it's a teaching of Jesus Christ given to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, Olive, Mount of Olives, therefore the name the Olivet Discourse. The subject of this discourse is the second coming of Christ and the signs of that coming. So it's his teaching about his own second coming, and it's an amazing passage, one that I've been wanting to get to for a long time. I, I, I debated whether to just jump there and stick it in somewhere, but the Lord said, no, keep, 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 keep the course, because I feel it's so relevant to the times that we are living in today. It's an overwhelming passage. It's a long passage, these two chapters. There is so much involved, so just buckle up, sit back, and we're going to see what God has to say here. You know, this is a topic of curiosity over the generations. From the time of the disciples, which we're going to be looking at, even to the prophets before, they searched Scripture trying to figure out what their prophecies really, really meant. To all these past couple thousand years, today it's a topic of curiosity. Tomorrow it's going to be a topic people want to know. People want to know. Now you remember that Jesus came to Jerusalem to redeem his people, Israel. He came as a Redeemer. He came as their Savior. He came to be their Deliverer. He came to be their Messiah. He came to be their King. And in doing that, He was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament. But John says in John 1.11, He came to that which was owned. Jesus came to His own people, the people of Israel, but His own, His people of Israel, did not receive Him. Such a sad commentary. 33 years after he entered the world, he is about to exit. He began his ministry by offering himself to the people of Israel, and he ended it by them rejecting him. It's only a couple of days now in the events of the time before he is to be executed on the cross by the very people he came to save and to help and to encourage and to rule. Now, if you've been with us in our study in Matthew, you know that he... Um, he has just given a final judgment in chapter 23 on Israel. His words are in verse chap of 37 of chapter 23 that we looked at last week. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often have I longed to gather you, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, and you were not willing. Look. Your house is left to you desolate. That's the last public speech that Jesus gave to the people of Israel. He was done. His final words to them are words of judgment. He never preaches another sermon to them. And we saw in chapter 21, in chapter 22, in chapter 23, uh, we saw how he pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel, judgment on the false leaders, judgment on the people that followed the leading and the deceptions of those false leaders. And that, that judgment came in, in the form of direct statements. It came in a number of different parables. 
And finally in chapter 23 is a blistering denunciation on the leaders that were drawing his people away, the false leaders. And he closes it by saying, your house is left to you desolate. Pronouncement of judgment as we ended last week. But it was followed by one single verse, verse 39, at the end of the chapter, for I tell you, you will not see me again until, there's a word of hope, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he says they won't see him again until he comes, until they recognize him as a true Messiah and King. So on the one hand, he pronounces judgment. On the other hand, he says, I'll be back. And you thought Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, coined that phrase. Now this particular conclusion to his message, I'm sure, actually filled his disciples' hearts with great hope. Yes, they heard that he pronounced judgment. They, they were listening. They were there. But they also heard that he would come as the one who would establish his kingdom. They had that in mind. They had waited for this for all the years that they had been with Jesus as his disciples. And we've talked about that concept before. And I believe at this very moment, at the close of the sermon uh, in Matthew 23, the disciples are probably at a high point of their experience with Jesus throughout all the three years of their ministry. So turn with me, if you would, to chapter 24 in your Bibles or your electronic device, chapter 24, Matthew, and we're going to read the first five verses as we get started in this discourse. Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 1. Jesus left the temple, this was after that sermon to all the people there and fussing with all the Pharisees and denouncing all that uh, that was taking place all that day long. He left the temple and was walking away with the disciples when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he said, Jesus said, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another, every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and, and, and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Now, the disciples had heard Jesus say that he was going to bring judgment, but then they also heard him say that he was going to come in the name of the Lord, a messianic truth. They knew that phrase from Psalms. And so they felt that because of the way they understood the Old Testament prophets that we're going to be looking at briefly this morning, he was he was going to bring judgment, and that judgment would be the cleansing and a political overthrow of the horrible Roman government that was bringing so much persecution upon them. And then immediately, uh, that would be followed by the kingdom, the new kingdom that uh, he was going to reign over. They believed that they were on the edge of the Messianic kingdom. This is what they had been longing for. This is what they'd been expecting. This is what they were excited about. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, this, uh, th- that verse supports that concept that was in their minds of what they were expecting. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Now, this was the beginning of that same week, coming into the last week into Jerusalem. 
So he tells them another parable because they're approaching Jerusalem and because, quote, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. That's what they had in mind. So the disciples, from the time he approached Jerusalem, thought the kingdom was immediately going to happen. And so they were, leaving, they were living in that anticipation and when the crowd threw palm branches before him and put their clothes, uh, put their coats and stuff in front of him, and he was riding on what? The colt of the foal of a donkey, right? Old Testament prophecy. And they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. They, they thought this was all part of readying the people for the kingdom. And you can't blame them. And then, then as, as he went into the temple, he cleansed the temple. They, they, they thought that was the purging of the hypocrites. And, and now he's saying he's going to come in judgment. They feel this is going to be the purification of Jerusalem and the wiping out of Rome, which they believe was going to happen. And then he's going to come in the name of the Lord as a Messiah. They, they, they see this all happening, boom, 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 right then. In fact, as they leave the temple grounds in chapter 24, verse 2, Jesus looked at the temple and said, Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And he even tells them there that the temple will be destroyed. And, and that kind of fit into their understanding of Scripture because they, they probably remembered Ezekiel said that the new kingdom, there would be a new temple. If there's going to be a new temple, the old temple has to be destroyed. So it all, it all made sense to them. And so it was all sort of coming together in their minds. The Messiah had reached the moment when he was going to bring his kingdom. And they had already forgotten his words about dying, about the seed falling into the ground that had, had to die. They ignored or had forgotten what he said about having to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes to be crucified and to rise again on the third day. He, he explained all that before this. They didn't want to hear that part. They believed because of the way they studied the prophets that first there would be a time of great tribulation. They probably thought that they were in that time. They, they had been in that a long time under the Roman and, and the Greek oppression. And it would be followed then by the coming of the herald who would, be, who would announce the Messiah. That, that was John the Baptist, of course. Then the Messiah would come. He, he was there. Then he would purge the godless nations and purge Jerusalem. Then he would gather the dispersed Jews from around the world and establish his kingdom. They thought they were right on schedule. They had been through the time of tribulation as far as they concerned. The forerunner had come. The Messiah was here. He had begun purging Jerusalem. So all that was left to be done was the destruction of the godless nations. And they were hoping for that one. Gather scattered Jews, setting up the kingdom, and they thought they were right at that moment. The kingdom was about to come. You see, they didn't have any sense of the long period of time or the time period between the first and the second coming of Christ. They didn't have an idea that Christ would come and then he would come back and that there would be a long period of thousands of years between the two. You see, that's not the way the prophets spoke. They didn't see that either. They only spoke of one coming of this month. The Messiah was going to come. They didn't fill in the large time gap in the middle because they didn't see the time gap. That's why the New Testament calls that a mystery which was hidden in time past. They didn't understand. 
Scripture says that they search Scripture. They search their own prophecies trying to figure it all out. The whole church age as we know it is an unrevealed thing in the Old Testament. It's not spoken of there. There's there's a big gap which they did not understand. It's like looking off into the distance at at a mountain range. You see all the peaks one after another, but you can't see the distance between one mountain and the other. You just see those peaks. Let me give you a quick example from Isaiah chapter 61, which gives us a picture of the coming Messiah and all the events that are going to take place. Starting in verse 1, it says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair." It goes on to say they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. It's it's an amazing prophecy covering almost everything that the Messiah is going to do. Then from verse 4 down through verse 11, the same chapter, you've got more of that prophecy describing the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ after the tribulation. Now notice what, what's in this prophecy. First he comes to preach in verse 1 and to proclaim freedom for the captives. He, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, talking about the time of repentance and salvation. Then it says that he will proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, talking about the seven years of, of the great tribulation. Isaiah saw all of that as one event, one event following another kind of happening all together, and that's the way the disciples then were thinking of it as well. Do you remember back to Luke chapter 4 when Jesus went into the temple, into the synagogue, and it says there, on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. What place was that? Isaiah 61. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Period. And then it says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the tenant, and sat down. (laughs) Wait a minute. He stopped in mid-sentence there. He didn't finish verse 2. How come? The next line is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Ever wonder why he didn't read that part? Because that was a future. That wasn't then. That's not what he was coming for the first time he came. That's not what he was fulfilling at that moment. That's why he closed the book after saying he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The first time the Savior came, he came to preach. The second time he comes, he comes to what? He comes to judge. But the disciples didn't understand that. They thought all the events were all together, taking place one right after another, one thing after another. That's that's where their minds were. And so we come to Matthew 24. We read the first two verses where it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. 
Truly I tell you, not one stone there will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now Jesus had just said at the end of chapter 23, Look, your house is left to you desolate. Then he left the temple and headed out of town. The disciples hurried up to catch up to him. And, and they, as they were leaving the temple area, they are probably looking at these, these structures, maybe with a new eye. They'd been to Jerusalem before. But Jesus said, it's all going to be desolate. And they're looking at these massive, massive structures. These massive stro- uh, stones. We, we've, a number of weeks back, we, we had a picture of some of those huge, huge cornerstones. Uh, I think six of them or eight of them. Some of the cornerstones, three, three feet thick, eight feet wide, 40 feet long, 200,000 pounds, one cornerstone. And there's a number of them piled on top of each other. They still try and figure out how, how they did that back then. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking and anticipating their question, how is that going to happen? He said, do you see all these things? He saw them looking. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. There won't be left, one left on top of another. That's exactly what happened. We can read the history in the events of the events by Josephus. And he says that of, of what was leveled to the degree... It was leveled to the degree where you would never know if you visited there at that time that anybody ever inhabited the place. That's what took place. That was in 70 A.D. They, the Romans, they tore it all down except for the western wall, the wailing wall that still stands to say uh, today. So that's what Jesus was referring to in those two verses. It's all going to be destroyed. Then the disciples, thinking of, these, uh, thinking of all these things, was going to happen in the very near future, asked the next logical question. So, says Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? You know, I think this was more than curiosity. I think they were actually excited they were excited. Think about yourself being there that moment with the understanding that they had of the events, not with the understanding that we now have. I mean, everything was happening so fast. John the Baptist, a forerunner, had come. The Messiah had been revealed. The people called out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's, that's all part of prophecy, right? It was all happening. Jesus had cleansed the temp- temple, condemned the leaders, pronounced judgment and destruction on Jerusalem and the temple. And he just walked away from the temple saying the next time you see him, they're going to sing his praises again. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That might be tomorrow, right? Next week? I mean, Jesus was going to Jerusalem, going away and coming back to Jerusalem. And if that happens, we're talking about the end of the age. How cool is that to be right there in the moment of the end of the age? I think they were excited about this. So, Jesus, when's this going to happen, huh? Huh, huh? <laughs> when's this going to happen? What's the sign? What are we supposed to be looking for? What are you going to do? A bright star in the sky, a flash of lightning, an angel, a trumpet? What? It's interesting to see this pattern of thinking even after the resurrection. I mean, when he was crucified, they were basically went into deep depression. I mean, all their hopes were dashed. What, what happened? Don't get it? They were holed up in a a, a room, scared to death. 
All their hope they had had according to what they had thought was going to happen. And, and when he was nailed to the cro- cross, it, it, it destroyed all their hopes. Huddling in that room with fear and despair until Mary came and said, Hey guys, Jesus is alive. And all of a sudden, they were all excited again. Oh, good. He's back. Because they were in this constant anticipation that it was a time and, and the kingdom was going to come then. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after the resurrection, Luke tells us, Then they gathered around him, the disciples gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Huh? Huh? Going to happen now? So we understand a little bit where their minds were as we come to Matthew 24. Listen, the whole point of this discourse to his disciples is to tell them, guys, it's not now. It is not now. That's the purpose, and they didn't get it until much later when the Holy Spirit brought his words back to them. Now look back at verse 3. There are a couple of important things to point out here to give us a better understanding of this passage. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What did they mean when they asked, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, the easy answer for us would be, well, they're talking about the second coming. No. They didn't know there was a second coming. The Old Testament prophets didn't see that coming, so the disciples couldn't have seen that coming. I mean, he's a Messiah, was already there. Uh, what more do they need, right? Why, why would he have to come back? So what were they asking? Well, the Greek word for coming is parousia. You've heard that word before. It comes from two Greek words, para, meaning around, and the verb to be. The concept is to be fully present. When is your permanent presence going to take place? There was no need to leave and come back again, right? He was already there. When are you going to take control? When are you going to be in charge? When are you going to be the king here? They're asking, when are you going to enter into the fullness of your messianic presence? That's the question they're asking there. And then they also ask, what will be the sign of the end of the age? That phrase, end of the age, is used five times in Matthew. The disciples asked it here. The Greek word for end is a compound word meaning the final end. What's the sign of the full and final end of man's age? It's used in Matthew 28, 20 in the Great Commission when Jesus promised, I will be with you to when? To the end of the age, to the full and final end. It's used in Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the tares. The middle, the middle, uh, the middle of verse 39 there, it says the harvest is the end of the age. The end of the age then is a time of God's harvest. What happens at the harvest time? Jesus says the reapers are going to be the angels, and it's, it's time when God goes out, gathers the wheat and the tares, separates them, sends the tares, the one who have not chosen Christ, sends them to hell to be burned in the fire. Verse 42 says, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 43 says about the wheat, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their, uh, of their father, referring to heaven. 
And just a few uh, verses later in the same chapter is a parable of the fishing net. Pulling in all kinds of fish, good and bad. And just as fishermen separate the, the good from the bad so they can keep and sell and eat the, the good, verse 49 says, this is how it will be when at the end of the age the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here in Matthew 24, the disciples are asking that ultimate question. When is the Messiah coming in full presence and glory? And when will be the final, full, complete, and total judgment take place? When the ungodly are sent to hell and the righteous are sent to glory in heaven. When will this be? And what's the sign? What are the signs? What are we supposed to be looking for here? What's, what's going to indicate to us what's going to happen? That's their question. When's it going to happen? Today? Tomorrow? Next week? That's the time frame they had in mind. And Jesus' answer begins in verse 4. The disciples think that this is all imminent, and so he has to explain to them that it isn't. It isn't imminent at that point. That it's way off yet in the future. And that's the purpose of from verse 4 onwards, a prophetic sermon that carries them and us out into the future. But it's drawing closer and closer. One of the reasons we know he's talking about the very end of the age is that he gives a list of signs in verses 4 through 14, which we're going to work our way through. Not all of them this morning. Signs such as people coming and saying, I am the Christ and deceiving people. Wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms, famine and earthquakes in verse 7, verse 9, persecution and killing and hating, and then there's turning away from the faith and false prophets and the love of many that will grow cold, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations. He's describing all kinds of signs that are going to come at the end of the age. They're signs of the second coming of Christ. He is not describing the rapture. The rapture and the second coming of Christ at the end of the age are two different events. And though this passage is not referring to the rapture, we are going to be taking a look um, at that event in the near future because it is so encouraging to us. But right in the middle of all these verses in verse 8, he says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. That too is important to understand. It's a Greek word for the actual pain a woman experiences just prior to giving birth. Jesus said these signs are the beginning of those birth pains. And as we all know, birth pains don't happen at conception. Birth pains don't happen normally during the nine months of pregnancy. They happen just before the birth, at the very end. They start out slowly and then increase in their pain and in their frequency. And they're, they're, they're not strung out all throughout the pregnancy. And neither are these things that Jesus mentions strung out all through the history of the church age. One author says, They are things which occur in rapid-fire succession that issue in the birth, as it were, of the Messianic kingdom. If we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 a minute, the, uh, the first three verses, Paul is talking about the same thing, the second coming of Christ. Listen, now brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You're not going to know. How does a thief in the night come? Very quietly, unexpectedly, suddenly. 
Then verse 3 says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. So the coming of Christ will be sudden and the destruction that comes also sudden. How sudden? Just as sudden as a labor pains on a pregnant woman, Paul says, and they will not escape. Same illustration. Isn't that interesting? So when Jesus says these signs are the beginning of birth pains, this has to put us at the end of the age, this, this uh, chapter of 24 here. It has to. And coupled with that is the fact that this whole discourse of Jesus is in response to the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So he's answering that question. So as we continue through these next two chapters, we understand that the whole of the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24 and 25, he's talking about the future. Now, it's not to say that some of these things that are going to happen that Jesus describes don't happen now, because they do. But they'll happen then at a scale and, and on a level and in proportions that are far beyond anything that we've ever known before. We have war now. We have earthquakes now. We have famine now. We have trouble in our world now. We have killing now. We have persecution now. We have hatred now. We even have some things happening in the sky that disturb us now. But nothing compared to the incredible display of things that are going to take place at that time in that compressed brief period of time called the birth pains of the kingdom. When God sends the earth into a racking pain and as, as he brings in the king in his kingdom. So that was a long introduction. But it's important for us to understand the context. But now having put us into the future, understanding that we're looking at the time known as the tribulation, a time in the future just before Christ comes, what are the signs? What are the signs to indicate the establishment of his kingdom? What are the signs to indicate the end of man's age and the beginning of God's eternal glorious kingdom? Well, Jesus gives us six of them, and we're going to look at the first one this morning, and we're going to check out the others next Sunday. The first sign is deception. Now, we're not saying there's no deception today. There is. We're not saying there wasn't deception back then. There was. There has always been, there have always been people who come in the name of Christ and in the name of God to lead people astray. There have always been false Christs and there always will be. But not like there will be in the end. Everything is heightened. Everything is intensified. Everything is escalated. And although the Olivet Discourse doesn't deal with the rapture of the church, that's not to say there is no rapture. We believe that the church of Jesus Christ is raptured out, and all these things take place afterwards, after the church is gone, after the Holy Spirit uh, takes back His restraining power and lets literally all hell break loose. At that time, the evil of this deception will exceed all other deceptions. The evil of these wars will exceed all other wars. The evil of these conflicts will exceed all other conflicts. The evil of this hatred and this murder will exceed all other hatred and murder when there's no restrainer left, the restrainer being the Holy Spirit. No restrainer left in the world to restrain the evil of mankind. So we're looking at a time when deception is at its height, and that's the first sign of the beginning of the birth pains. 
And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out, very literally, keep your eyes open that no one deceives you. Don't be deceived. There are going to be people in that period of time who are looking for answers. People who have heard the message of the gospel, who have not yet accepted Christ, they are going to be going through that time and they're going to be looking for answers because they, they see a world that's going to begin to disintegrate and evil is, is running rampant. In fact, it even tells us in, in verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, it's because of the restraining power of the Holy Spirit has been lifted. We think it's bad now. <laughs> I don't think we can even imagine what it's going to be like at that time. When the church is gone and the restrainer is not there. And so he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Jesus is painting a picture of a world in chaos, a world falling apart. According to Paul talking to Timothy, a world where natural affection is gone. A world in economic chaos. A world living in unrestrained sin, much like Sodom and Gomorrah. Everything beginning to collapse. People living in a world like uh, like that are, are, are people who are going to be looking for leaders. A world looking for messiahs and saviors and deliverers. They're looking for somebody to help them. And as soon as they start crying out for those kind of leaders, guess what? There's going to be leaders popping up. Hey, I'll help you. I'll be your savior. I'll be your messiah. Offering them solutions. In fact, in verse 5, Jesus says, For many will come in my name, claiming I am the messiah, and will deceive many. Has that happened? To a degree, yes. According to a recent Wikipedia article, I don't know how much you trust Wikipedia, but according to a, a recent Wikipedia article, there's been more than 20 major Jewish false Christs since the time of Christ. In that same article, there's a list of seven Muslim false Christs. There are people like Haley Selassie, I don't know if some of you, that, that rings a bell with some of you, who is a Rastafari who claimed to be the Messiah. Victor Rodriguez, born in Colombia, who founded the Universal Christian Gnostic Movement. There have been some female messiahs like uh, Nirmala Srivastave, who died just only four years ago, claiming to be the Messiah. A man by the name of Riyaz Shahi, founder of the Messiah Foundation International. This man declared himself to be the Muslim Mahdi the one that's going to return for the Muslim, the Jewish Messiah, and the Kalki Avatar. uh, Ruho Okawa, born in 1956, founded something called Happy Science and claims to channel the spirits of Muhammad and Christ and Buddha and Confucius. There have been so many already. Some of you might remember Father Divine, who died in 1965, Sun Moon, uh, Sun Moon Moon, who just died in 2012, founded the Unification Church and claimed to be the Christ. Brian David Mitchell, Mormon fundamentalist, claiming to be a type of the Messiah. David Shaler, a former British MI15 agent, okay, declared himself Messiah in just in 2007. There's a Russian Messiah who used to be a traffic cop. He's got 5,000 uh, followers up in the mountains of Siberia somewhere. There's an Australian Messiah who used to be a Jehovah's Witness uh, preacher. There's a Brazilian Messiah, a French Messiah, uh, a number of African Messiahs. So yes, we've already had them, some of them, many of them. But still, it's not going to be like that day when the world is going to be coming to an end, when the world is in absolute desperation and a world that is screaming and crying for deliverers and leaders. 
fact, if we looked at uh, verse 23 and 24 of our chapter here, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and, prof- and false prophets will appear before great signs and wonders uh, and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. In other words, they're not going to be like just the false teachers and the false messiahs that we have been experiencing in the world today. But they're going to be able to do signs and wonders, <clears throat> miracles. They're going to be able to do supernatural demon-inspired miracles that are going to captivate the attention of the world. And this slew of false Christ ultimately will culminate in one false Christ known as the Antichrist. and He will be the epitome of all the false Christs. He will be the ultimate Satan-indwelt individual. And Daniel calls him the little horn. He calls him the king of the fear, uh, with the fierce face. He calls him the willful king. John calls him the beast. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness and the man doomed to destruction. And he comes as a culmination of all the false Christ. And he is so convincing and so deceptive that Daniel 9.27 says that even Israel as a nation makes a covenant with him and enters into league with him believing Him to be their deliverer. Quote, He will confirm a covenant with many. This prophecy is going to the people of Israel. So the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many. That's how deceitful He is going to be. Coming in peace. Coming to help. Coming to save. Listen to the warning of Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, Paul says. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Where is that? It's the temple in Jerusalem. He sets himself up. And just as Daniel was saying, Israel is going to make a covenant with him and allow him to come into that temple and set himself up as God. And all the nations of the world uh, fall into this deception and come under his power. No wonder Jesus strongly warns, watch out! Don't be deceived! For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. That's just the first sign. <laughs> That's the first sign. There are five more signs that we're going to be looking at next, uh, next Sunday, all of which are only the beginning, all of which happen in the early part of the Great Tribulation. But I just want to say, be of good courage. Be of good courage. We who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who have declared with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, will not be facing all of that. Why? Because of the rapture. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How can you be encouraging one another if, if you're looking forward to all this horrible stuff that's going to be happening? Caught up in the clouds, that's the rapture. But the sobering part of all this is when we think about all those 
who have not yet declared Jesus as Lord. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to break the power of Satan, to free the captives, to give new life. And he has told us that he wants our help. He's actually commanded us <laughs> to go and make disciples of all nations because he knows what's coming. In a moment, we're going to sing about why the gospel of Christ is so important. Particularly when we look at the events in the world unfolding and realize that the time is getting closer and closer and closer. We're going to sing about how Christ came to destroy the works of the evil one and to destroy the kingdom of darkness and light. And he came to rescue men from the law of sin. Folks, this is the gospel of Christ. And we are to take that and we are to share that. Father, this morning we come to you thanking you and praising you for the salvation that you have given to us. We thank you that you are the Lord of lords. We thank you that you are the King of kings. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And Father, we look forward to that day when you're, when you're going to catch us up in the air. Father, our hearts break for those that have been, many who have been listening to this message and who have never made that decision to follow Jesus. Others perhaps that have not heard the message and so have not had that opportunity to call on the name of Jesus as Lord. Father, I pray that you'd break our hearts for them, that you would instill in us the necessity, the desire, the, the, the uh, energy to share this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, that they too can be free, that they can be freed from the enemy, that they can have a new life in you. So, Father, bless us this morning and help us to be obedient to you to share this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.